Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Spiritual Practice, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Yakir Englander, and today we will be talking to Professor Jeff Kripal, the author of The Flip, Epiphanous of Mind and the Future of Knowledge, published in 2019. As someone who grew up in, the Jew- in a Jewish mystical Hasidic family and community, nature and miracles, life and death were not so separated. My rabbis always spoke about their dead teachers as if they come to visit them often. Many stories focus on the singing of flowers and trees and angels who help them to grow. None of that prevents a community to go to doctors when anything happened to the body. But the Hasidic narrative helped them to carry on the challenges of daily life. However, when we look at the Academy of Religious Studies, Many times it looks that good academic science do not take these phenomena very seriously or try to bring them under the wing of real science. This is one of the reasons why the book The Flip is so unique. Professor Kripal holds the Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University and is the Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at the Aslan Institute in Big Sur, California. Jeff, can you please share with us the story behind this book? Yeah, I I mean, I'm happy to share as much as you want to hear about myself. I probably more than you want to (laughs) hear. You know, it's your choice. It's yeah, yeah. Let me let me tell you the shorter version of the the long story. The the truth is is that. Professors of religion are very strange uh, beings. Um, They usually got into the field for very eccentric and very personal and very existential reasons. So I think most of them have really a fascinating story. Um, This story actually probably begins uh, in the short version with me trying to write a history of the human potential movement out in California. So from about 2000 to about 2007, I was writing a book that uh, came to be called Esalen, America and the Religion of No Religion. And it really wasn't just a history of the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. It was really a history of the California counterculture and all of the esoteric um, uh, movements that, that came through the place in the 60s and 70s and the way that really transformed American culture. While I was writing that book, um, I was talking to lots of people who were part of it, of course, and they were telling me all of these strange stories that I knew couldn't have happened, um, but I knew that happened. And I was so struck by their honesty and their integrity and their earnestness and why they wanted to tell me these stories. And I was also so struck that, you know, I had been trained in the study of really mystical literature and had spent 20, 25 years at that point. 
with some of the most extreme texts in, in the field. And I just didn't have any way of making sense of these things. Hmm. I was like, what, what happened? How did our field come to erase, essentially, these forms of fairly common human experience? Can you, can you and, share with us um, an example or two of the experiences that touch you in that way? Yeah, so, well, there were a lot of out-of-body experiences. Um, sometimes one of them occurred during birth. The, the mother was birthing a child and had a kind of classic out-of-body experience. Um, some of them were in accidents or illnesses. People left their bodies and had kind of transformative religious experiences and moments of trauma. Some of them were what most people would think of as UFO encounters, but weren't necessarily UFOs, some kind of plasmas, some kind of balls of light. I, some of them were what most people would think of as classic kundalini awakenings, so some kind of energy in the spine that awakes and erupts into the head and sends the person into some kind of ecstatic religious state. There was a whole range of them. They really, I don't, I, I think we classify them at our, at our peril, frankly. Um, and what struck me about them was that they clearly weren't just subjective. Often there were material events or physical events evolved. And yet they also weren't just objective. They were clearly related to these subjective states and seemed organized around these, these spiritual states of, of consciousness and energy. And I just was so struck by that. I was so struck by how they violated how we had carved up the world and the academy between the subjective stuff and the humanities and the objective stuff and the sciences and, you know, never the twain. Let's keep those apart. Let's see the sort of Cartesian pact. Um, and it just wasn't working. And I, I just became so struck by that. And so I spent about another four or five years actually writing a history uh, an intellectual history of the paranormal called Authors of the Impossible. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered writing that book was that a lot of these concepts, well, actually none of them originated in the tabloids. Um, they actually originated in the universities. Uh, things like, words like paranormal, words like psychical, um, words like parapsychology, psi, all of these were coinages of people with PhDs, essentially. Uh, places like Cambridge and, and Duke and Harvard, mostly. Um, and so I, I was really struck by that again, how all of these things were sort of not normative, but were central to the intellectual life in the late 19th and early 20th century. But then over the course of the 20th century, they get gradually taken off the table and excluded, and they sort of enter popular culture and entertainment and science fiction, but get tabooed essentially from the things that intellectuals do so in a way modern um religious um yeah modern religions as modern secular or sign sign the, the the modern science we try to understand the world right and therefore all these places all these areas where we don't understand we push them to the side? Yeah. So, so what I, I sort of became a Foucauldian. I mean, in the sense that 
I realize that the reason science works is it, it gets to it's, it gets to say what it can explain, <laughs> and, and what it can't explain it says doesn't exist, or at least scientists do. And I'm like, well, that ain't that ain't true. You you guys are this is a shell game. I, I mean, you you're all you're doing is you're just taking this stuff all off and saying it doesn't exist, and all the stuff left on the table. Of course, you can explain because you got to say what's on the table, and. I was like, that doesn't work for me because A, I'm not a scientist and B, my job is to understand people's religious experiences. And I don't get to say what is a real or an unreal religious experience. To me, a religious experience is an experience that someone says is religious, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to take all this stuff in and I was trying to understand these human beings and I was being told this stuff doesn't happen. And I knew that was complete bunk. Um, And so... And at the same time, I was hanging out with lots of scientists, mostly physicists and, and neuroscientists, who were really open to this stuff and were really concerned about how it had been taken off the table. And so I knew, I knew that I knew good science when I saw it, and I know bad science when I saw it. And I, I got really, really fascinated by how, essentially, how the disciplines were controlled by these, essentially, these dogmas or these taboos. And, I, and, and, and our, my own field, of course, was not immune from this or innocent of this. The humanities is, in some ways has even more rigorously disciplined itself and taken off the table, you know, the anomalous and the strange. And, and the human has sort of become smaller and smaller and smaller with every, every decade that ticks by, we are smaller hmm. in, in the humanities. And I, I was like, wow, no wonder. No wonder people don't listen to us anymore. All we have to say is are depressing things. And, yeah. and we can't even talk about the things that make something religious. You know, we can only talk about how it's political or social or historical or embodied or, or this or that. But you can't actually talk about that which makes it religious, which is this transcendence or this 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 sacrality or this numinosity that's just completely out and so i got really concerned about that um not just because i thought it was intellectually cowardly and i still do by the way i got interest i got concerned about it because i think it's why the humanities are declining mm-hmm. i think we are pushing a model of the human that is so partial and that is so small and that is frankly so banal that you know in some ways we deserve to die and and i don't i don't say that with any glee i say that with sadness and so the work then for me became well how do we make the human big again how do we reaffirm transcendence how do we reaffirm all of these things that drove human civilizations around the planet for millennia that we're saying the exact opposite, that the, the, the human is cosmic, you know, yeah. is essentially, I think, what the religions are saying. Um, and yet I didn't want to, I'm not pushing a religion. I mean, I don't... This is what I love about the book. So one yeah. of the things that you say, you say a few times is that the fact that there is more doesn't mean that now we need to do the logic with quotation jump to say that automatically there is God, right? You say there is something more that we don't touch. 
let's invite it and let's see what will happen to religious studies and to science. Right, right. And so the, the last, but the last chapter of this, the, how the book came about was in 2014. So I published this little manifesto in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is kind of the New York Times of the academic world. It's kind of what all administrators read. And the, and the piece was called Visions of the Impossible. And I basically just set these ideas out in a, in a fairly condensed way. And it just sort of blew up, you know, kind of the conversations just kind of exploded. And an editor at a press in New York called Bellevue Literary Press read it. And she contacted my literary agent and eventually got a hold of me. And she, her name's Erica Goldman. And Bellevue Literary Press is actually a really interesting press. It was founded by a medical doctor in Bellevue Hospital in New York. And it was founded with the explicit intention of putting the humanities and the sciences back into conversation. Hmm. And so Erica contacted me and she says, you know, Jeff, I, I myself am a very secular, skeptical person, but there was nothing in your essay I could disagree with. And I found that really, really interesting. And she said, will you expand this essay into a book for us? And I foolishly said, yes. Um, <laughs> And, and I, I say foolishly because I have enough things to do. I don't need another darn book to write. Um, and then poor Erica waited and waited. And of course, I didn't write. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing all these other things that I ha I'm supposed to be doing. And so finally, you know, she, she kept getting back to me with very graciously. She says, you know, we, we did talk about this book. And so finally, you know, four years later, I, I gave her this book and she she edited it very lightly and published it, and, and that's how the book came around or came about. Wow, I love it. Thank you for bringing the storytelling inside. Yeah. So I, I would love if we can um, dedicate the first part of the dialogue um, about the place of religion. Um, so one of the claims that you said in the book is that there is um, a threat on, on religions when we come with this material, because in a way the materials tell us that there is not a specific right, again with quotation, truth, religion. Um, can you share with us about that? Yeah, I think the best way to do is to tell a story, a true story Please. actually, which I think you'll appreciate. Um, so maybe a little before the book or after the book, I co-wrote another book called Change in a Flash. And it's about a, a Jewish woman here in Houston who was struck by lightning in the parking lot of her synagogue, actually, as she was trying to attend the yard site of her beloved grandfather. Her name is Elizabeth Crone. She's a dear friend. And she has this really elaborate near-death experience. And when she is healing from the lightning strike, she becomes massively precognitive in her dream life in a really disturbing and really extraordinary way. And all these things start to spike around her. So in, um, I don't know, it was two or three years ago now, I was invited out to this conference in, um, in the Northeast, and it was, it was um, populated mostly by Hasidic rabbis, actually. <laughs> um, How that happened. 
Yeah, it was actually great. These were like serious, serious rabbis and serious, serious Jewish intellectuals. And they really were trying to figure out how do we make, you know, this form of a Jewish spiritual life, um, how do we keep it alive and how do we make it relevant in today's world? And so they invited me out, I think primarily because of my work on Esalen. And I gave a paper on Elizabeth and her near-death experience. And what's so interesting about Elizabeth's experience, she, she's, she's a Reformed Jew, and her synagogue's a very progressive, very liberal Jewish synagogue. And when she had this near-death experience, which changed her life, the rabbis at the synagogue were not interested in it. They had nothing to say. Yeah. Um, but her... About her experience. Yeah, because it didn't fit into their their project. But the Orthodox community, of which her son is an intimate part, had all kinds of things to say about it and were really, really interested in it. And so Elizabeth was sort of caught between these two Jewish worlds. She She had had an experience that seemed to confirm a lot of the Kabbalistic and Hasidic beliefs about the soul and the afterlife. But she had all kinds of moral problems with their social um, implications of... Yeah, yeah, the, the sort of, you know, the kosher laws and yes. their, their, their views around gender and stuff. And she felt very at home with the reform Jewish tradition around gender and, and social issues, but was just utterly frustrated with their indifference to her, her experience. And so I gave a paper on this, and I was just trying to pull out all of these threads. And in the Q&A session, one of, the, uh, one of my colleagues who in Jewish intellectuals said, said to me, well, isn't, isn't this material against religion? And I, what I heard him saying, yeah. basically what I, basically what I what said was, yeah, basically what I heard and what, how I answered was, I said, well, maybe it it could well be if you're if by religion you mean some kind of confident, um, firm doctrinal position that excludes all other possibilities. Yes, actually, I think these experiences probably are dangerous to that kind of worldview. On the other hand, I think it's precisely these kinds of human experiences that generate religion and that produce other forms of community and tradition and, and even scripture. I think, I think these experiences are proto-religious and they can get picked up and they can become religion, but they can also, of course, become something else that's, that's not religion. And so I think it's, it, it depends. But I, I really wanted to honor his question because I thought it was honest and I thought it was insightful. I, I, th I think there is something about these experiences that is a bit scary to most religious worldviews. I think I, I love what you said, and I think about um, a saying that I heard in, from one of um, one of the Catholic monks, and he said that they are mom there is something like a lava, right? There is this fire that is walking, and we some we most of the time we don't see it. And then there is a moment, you know, in history when this fire, this lava, this eros is coming out. Now, the beauty of the people who experience it or they experience the person, the holy person, is 
that they love this experience so much that they want to find ways how to, how to keep it. It's like how to freeze this eros and right. to shift it from generation to generation. And this is a problem or this is a challenge because the other side is, is exactly the other side that you share is also the more secular or scientist way with saying like, I don't want to touch it at all. So don't come to me with these stories. So we try somehow to touch, but also to protect it, right? And the protection can hurt it in a way. Well, I, you know, a lot of religion is protection, right? It, it, it's, keeping, it's keeping the sacred fire at arm's length right. so that it doesn't burn us up. And, and I actually, you know, I'm deeply sympathetic to both sides, Yakir. I, I'm deeply sympathetic to the people who have these experiences and don't fit in to their own religious communities because they've had such an experience. But I'm also deeply sympathetic to the religious communities who are trying to preserve this and pass it on. And I think this destabilization and the stabilization are both very, very human mm -hmm. and really, really important. Um, so if we come back to, to, to my question about how this is a threat, because it's something that, it's, that these experiences are going beyond any specific religion, um, the, the experience that people share are much more human. It's not Jewish by definition. It's not Muslim by definition. Um, but I also wonder, Jeff, if people are practicing a specific religious from what you are learning, can you say that by practicing a specific method, specific Torah, halacha, do they experience the same color or the same kind of meta experiences? I think it's messy. <laughs> I, you know, so Elizabeth's experience, to go back to Elizabeth, her near-death experience I think was very Jewish, actually. Um, I actually think it was Kabbalistic, if you really, you know, push me to the corner. Um, there were a lot of features of it that struck me as remarkably Kabbalistic in ways that she wasn't aware of, but that she would recognize instantly when I talked to her about it. So I think there was something about her Jewish tradition that really shaped it. On the other hand, there were other features of her experience that clearly overflowed and were more than the tradition. And so I think it's both and I think, I think also entirely secular people who have no religious background have these experiences too, and they experience and see things that other people don't. So I, I think our backgrounds deeply inform and make possible certain things, but they also make other things impossible. I think, you know, we, we're always being opened up and constricted simultaneously. Right, right. by definition, yes. Um, other things that people, I mean, one of the things that also come to me from the book is that when people experience these experiences, they know it. It's not about belief. They have it, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder for the people who never had these experiences, um, do you find some methods where they can experience it in a safe way? I mean, in a way, can we invite 
um, can we create an academic, an academic um, you know, conference and make something that will make this scientist to experience <laughs> in academic that's, way? That's the, yeah, that's the $10 million question right there. Um, this, of course, is what the religions have dreamed about is some kind of technology that can reproduce the origin, original revelation, right, or the original experience. I'll say a couple things about that. One is I, I'm also, I want to honor and respect people's non-belief or people's rejection of this, what I call the flip. I mean, essentially the flip is this, this moment in a person's life, in, in, my, in this case of scientists and engineers, in which they've been trained to think that there's only matter and that matter is mechanistic and materialistic and organized in mathematical patterns and is essentially meaningless. <clears throat> and they have one of these experiences and they know instantly that actually that's only half the case, that mind or, or consciousness or spirit is, is fundamental as well and is all about meaning and purpose. And so they, they flip their worldview, but they realize after the flip that their science or their technology or their medicine works just fine that their earlier materialism was an interpretation of the science. It was, wasn't actually the science. Now, the problem is that these flips are fairly rare and not reproducible. And I'll, I'll, I'll bracket that and come back to that in a moment. And so most people are not sympathetic to this argument because there's nothing in their experience to which they can relate. And I, I want to honor that. And I want to, I, it's sort of my theodicy. Why is it that most people don't have these experiences, right? It's not why is there evil or suffering in the world. It's why are we so thick and, and, and dull and we don't have this experience? I mean, I think that's a real question. And I don't think they're replicable. And I don't think any of these methods really work in a consistent way. However, there are some technologies that work in a remarkable, statistically positive way. And I'm thinking of psychedelics. I'm thinking of psilocybin, for example, in clinical trials at places like Johns Hopkins. You know, they've been giving these, these molecules to people who are dying, you know, people with advanced cancer or people with clinical depression that isn't responding to the typical medications to people with PTSD, these are, really, <clears throat> these are really suffering people. And somewhere between 60 and 80% of the time, which is a remarkable number, people flip and they have one of these experiences and they come out and they're no longer afraid of death. You know, they're still going to die, but they don't care. <laughs> or, you know, they, their clinical depression is instantly dissolve for a time and yes they're going to be depressed again but it's not going to mean the same thing mm -hmm. and they're going to be able to deal with their trauma or and so there i think we're struggling as a culture now toward ways that might be reliable ways to flip people but we haven't even begun to ask all kinds of moral questions like who gets to flip right and who who gets the money to, I mean, there's an economic and there's a, 
There's all kinds of moral issues wrapped up here that the religions have answered historically in terms of a kind of elitism that, um, you know, not everybody can flip and does, and gets to flip. And so we're going to keep these experiences in these sort of coded esoteric communities. And, 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 and actually that's an answer, Akira. That's, I, I'm not dismissing that as an answer. There is a reason to protect these things from the broader culture. Um, so I think, I think we've just begun. We, we are not even at a point as a culture that we can acknowledge that these states exist. Once we acknowledge they exist, then all of these other moral and social and political questions will come, come to the fore, I think. I really love what you say that the, the question is not only about the flip, but the question is what are the moral questions that are coming with the flip? I'm yeah. just thinking about the, in, in, in the Jewish history, we have the Hasidic movement. And I think that the Hasidic movement come from a deep pain um, of the general Eastern European Jewish community who didn't experience anything spiritual um, other than the Jewish law. And then came the mystics, or the Ba'alei Shem, um, which the founder of the Hasidic movement was one of them. And they said, you know what? We need to engage Kabbalah and mysticism into the daily life. However, three generations after that, you see the decision of the rabbis who said, you know what? Only the leader is going to be the one who experienced them, <laughs> and the community will experience him but right. they will not have the experience itself, right? And I right. think it comes from, from this fear of what happens when you have a whole community who have mystical experiences, and also from the place of um, how do we navigate however the question or the debate should every community member should experience that or only the leaders is still there. So it's not a solved question. Well, you know, so I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and the same, the same problem is in Roman Catholicism. The, the last thing you want is everybody becoming a mystic. I mean, it, it, it's a, I mean, that's a nightmare if you're trying to run a church because these people all are convinced they have revelations, and you, it, it's chaos. Right. It's chaos. Right. And so you then set up this very hierarchical, very authoritarian tradition that can channel or control that charisma, but can also say, no, you know, no, this person over here is not seeing the Virgin Mary. That's not real. But this person over here is. And the way the, the Catholic Church did it is they created religious orders and essentially, essentially subsumed the charisma of these these charismatic mystics into the church, but but demanded obedience and demanded you know that the the religious charisma charism or charisma could be subordinated to the the broader culture or tradition. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I and I think that problem exists in all religions. I don't think it's unique to Judaism or Roman Catholicism. Right. And maybe it should be there. I think this is part of that. It should be there in a way. It's a good question. I think the challenge is when these questions don't have even an invitation to come. Right. right. And what the flip argues, I mean, the last chapter is called The Politics of the Flip. Yes. And essentially what I suggest there is that, hey, let's not, 
romanticize or idealize the flip. You know, once someone flips, they can go in any number of moral and political directions. There is no necessary A to B to C. There's no, the mystical and the moral are, do not, are not easily related. Um, and so, but that means that where this should really sit is with conversations like this and in thoughtful public conversation that can recognize both concerns and negotiate these things in, in, in community and in conversation. And I don't pretend where, I know where that's going to go. That's, that's not my job. It, that's up to these communities and these conversations. But if we can't have that conversation, then of course that's not going to happen. And you can't have the conversation until you just admit that these things happen. So again, we're just, we're just <laughs> taking little baby steps, you know? Yes. So I want to do a shift and to move from the place of religion um, and the flip to the place of science and the flip. Okay. Um, in page 90, you speak about um, the, how the universe became self-aware. And you say like that, life and sentience, um, and, and, um, sentience are not some random existential events. And then later you said the universe involves towards consciousness towards eyes that see and minds that perceive and eventually come to know what they know. I wonder, can you explain to us a little bit more about what does it mean that the world's universe has a consciousness? In which mean, I know a little bit from phenomenology, what is the human consciousness? What is it means the universe consciousness? <laughs> yeah, you're essentially asking me what God is. I mean, right? I mean, yeah, but I don't want to ask that because I know you will not answer. So I ask about the science in the universe. So what I'm trying to do in those lines, I mean, look, I mean, people who are absolute atheists nevertheless recognize that that biological evolution has produced a species that is becoming aware of evolution. So you have this really bizarre reflexive thing happening in evolution in which the cosmos is evolving a species that becomes aware of the evolution of the cosmos. And what I'm trying to suggest is that's essentially a religious um, um, realization that's being framed in entirely secular terms. Um, you know, the flip also, I mean, it runs through physics. It also runs through biology. Uh, I mean, the big sin in biology these days is to admit that there's meaning or purpose or, or even intelligence when it, er, biological life forms show every appearance of all of those things. And so a lot of biology is essentially fancy rhetorical ways of explaining all that away. And it appears very much that consciousness is driving this process. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is anonymous, and it's an, actually a definition of hydrogen, and it goes like this. Hydrogen is a light, odorless gas that, given enough time, turns into people. Right? So you're like, whoa, that's weird. And yeah, th that's because there's something in this sort of cosmic evolutionary impulse that is driving towards more and more complexity and more and more reflexivity and more and more life. And, and so that, that kind of 
cosmic consciousness, as I call it in the book, does not presume a human ego. It does not presume a social identity that you and I think we are. Um, I mean, the cell in evolutionary biology is a fantastically complex biological machine that is doing its own thing, regardless of what Yakir and Jeff are thinking at the moment. Life does not depend on us watching it or, or thinking about it. It has its own intelligence. It has its own um, um, capacity to, to shape itself. And that's what I mean by this broader form of consciousness. I, I don't mean the ego. I mean some kind of life force or some kind of minded intelligence that appears to be driving um, um, the evolution of life, at least on this planet, as far as we, and you know, it's all we really know at this point. Yes. So I want to keep um, um, focusing on this and I, I will move to page 109 and 110. And you speak there about um, the question, you call it the big question and the ease question. And you say like that. The single big question that derives most of the modern philosophy of mind is this. What is the relationship between mind and matter? And how is this relationship mediate or produced by the brain? And now you come and you say like that. But beware of this seeming simplicity. Not only do we not know what mind or consciousness is in here, the confidence of materialism aside, we really do not know what matter is out there either. As both physics and philosophers have pointed um, out again and again, all of physics tell us absolutely nothing about what matter is. It tells us a great deal, of course, about the causal structures and mathematical behavior of matter, but nothing, absolutely nothing, about what we might call the isness of matter, what is this deep down in itself. So what matter is, and, and you know what, I will ask you, Jeff, I, I don't want to ask the same question, so I want to ask it like, what the questions that we need to ask ourselves in order to understand matter better? Well, again, so I'm not a physicist, obviously, but I'm channeling my physics friends here. And I'm also channeling a philosopher of mine named Philip Goff. Philip Goff. Um, Phil um, wrote a book called Galileo's Error. And basically, Phil, Philip's argument is that the way science develops is it takes the is question off, off the table. Right. And it decides to only focus on the behavior or the structure question. And so this is where you get modern science that can tell us everything or almost everything about the behavior of invisible particles of matter, but cannot tell us what the particle or the matter is. It, 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 that's not even a scientific question. You cannot answer that with the science. And this, though, is the question for philosophers, but also for, for, for people who have one of these flips, because they believe they've directly experienced the nature of matter, which is minded, which is some form of consciousness. Um, so, I mean, that's really what I'm talking about there. I'm not trying to issue confident statements about what matter is, because that'd be, be foolish of me. I'm not a physicist, but I'm trying to describe what physicists 
say about physics itself mm. and how they are so aware that what they're doing actually has nothing to do with the nature of matter. It has to do with the behavior of matter. And the, the typical layperson, myself included, simply doesn't know that. We, we have this sort of veneration for science and we assume that they know things that they don't. And, um, and so I'm, that's really what I'm trying to emphasize there. Um, and the mind matter thing, I mean, we, we don't know what matter is. I mean, the more we learn about matter, the more it disappears and the more it looks like mind. Um, and we certainly don't know what the mind is in, in neuroscience. I mean, basically, we're told over and over again that there is no such thing as mind. It's, it's all an illusion. And that's not very satisfying if you happen to be such a mind. You're like, <laughs> well, wait a minute. <laughs> so, I, you know, we're just in this crazy, crazy place in modern intellectual life where we don't know what mind is and we don't know what matter is, and yet we're being told what the relationship between mind and matter is very confidently. And I'm just simply, I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm just... I'm just repeating things that my colleagues have said, that this is clearly not sustainable. This is clearly not the case. Um, and so we can't keep building a culture. We can't keep building our disciplines, much less a public culture, on things that are just fundamentally not true. So my last question will be, about, let's go back to, to your field, to religious studies. Um, lately, um, we know that there are more research which maybe come to more to the place where you wish to be. Um, I'm thinking about the, um, the research that is happening around meditation and science and mindfulness and, 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 and religious, you know, by coming from the Buddhist tradition and mindfulness tradition, etc., etc. I wonder, as a scholar in religious studies, what are the questions that you will invite the young generation of scholars to ask also? I would not say instead, but also. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I, I might get a little crabby here and a little inappropriate, but I, I, think it's, I think it's helpful to answer this question. I think a lot of the study, particularly of mindfulness, which has a very Buddhist kind of quality to it, is at the end of the day, materialistic and, and reinforces this worldview I'm trying to argue against. Um, I mean, scientists like Buddhism be, because, you know, it's trying, or they think it's trying to argue that there is no such thing as a self or, or, or a soul. And I suppose on one level it is. Um, but what, what that kind of research is ignoring and will not study is all the anomalous phenomena that happen around someone who meditates or has such an experience. So for example, I have a, a close neuroscientist friend named David Presti who teaches at University of California, Berkeley, and he wrote a book um, a year or so ago on this exact topic. And he pointed out that a lot of the research on mindfulness and Buddhist meditation, every time a subject like reincarnation or, or precognition or comes up, they, they'll, they immediately shove it aside. Yes. Be, and the reason they do that is they want to be doing real science. Um, they want respect, and they want, of course, the grant money. And they think probably rightly that taking those things seriously are going to compromise their 
their respectability and their ability to get grants. And they're probably right about that. And that's a big problem. Um, that's just more of the discipline disciplining the discipline and restricting our, our view. Um, my own feeling is that when someone is a profound meditator, all kinds of strange things are going to happen around that person. And those strange things are trying to speak to us, They're trying to tell us things. And if we keep saying they don't exist or they don't happen, then we're not listening. And it seems to me that's the exact wrong approach to have here. Um, and it doesn't mean I believe in, evol in, in reincarnation or I, I believe in any of these things in the literal way that they're usually presented, but I absolutely am convinced that these experiences happen and that they're part of the human condition and that they deserve our attention and our respect. Um, so that, that's, that's where I would hope the younger generation would go is don't, don't hide behind or don't, don't get interested in stuff just because it it um, it supports your materialism or your mechanism or the culture you're already embedded in. Get interested in stuff that challenges that, that culture and that worldview and that is obviously a part of human history but is not being looked at at the moment. You know, what does that tell us? That That's where I would like younger people to go. Um, Sounds fat sounds so interesting and so important jeff thank you so much thank you it's, it's been it's, it's been a treat <laughs>